our Easter series, Can You Believe That Easter Is Almost Upon Us? We're going to have flyers ready to start distributing. Remember Easter, um, Easter Sunday, you might splurge a little bit on chocolate. If you're going to have an Easter egg on Sunday, for every Easter egg you have, you need to deliver 20 pamphlets for the Easter services. Not really, but, <laughs> but it's a nice idea. It's good exercise for us as well. Um, but our series this year, uh, Easter Like Christmas, is one of those series that you look at and you go, how are we going to approach it with fresh eyes this year? And what I want to do today and for the next few weeks, I want to consider Jesus as the disturber. Jesus the disturber. Which doesn't sound right, does it? We, we think of Jesus as the uniter, as the one who brings people together, as the one who, who is just fluffy kittens and kindness. But, but actually... Actually, as we look at the person of Jesus, he is the one who disturbs, who interrupts, who breaks through, who, who just... If you're not for him, he is the most irritating person on the planet. Because he calls on us to not just follow him, but to follow him absolutely. He says to us, don't just... Say you believe me, take up your cross and follow me. He comes into where we are and says, Hey, you need to live according to how God wants you to live. God in Jesus calls us to be how God meant us to be. And, and he doesn't play by our rules. The Gospels we're going to have a look at in a second... Uh, today we're looking at Jesus' authority. And I want to suggest to you over the course of the series that the reason Jesus died, A, it was God's plan. But from the human side, Jesus died because he was a troublemaker. They thought. He was a disturber. They thought. He interrupted the status quo. He did. Let's pray and then we'll read together. Father, thank you so much that you do speak to us. Um, Jesus, please disturb our lives. We, we are sorry when we, when we think that following you means sitting back and relaxing. Please, Lord, you've always disturbed the status quo. I pray that you would keep us disturbed for God, <laughs> enthusiastic for you. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would never lose the wonder of who you are and the radical call that you place on our lives. And in particular today, I pray that we would be caught up anew with your authority. Lord, that that authority would be true for us, in us, with us. Lord, I pray that we would learn to submit to your authority even when you disturb us in our sin, in our fallenness, in our imperfections. Thank you, Lord, that although you are the disturber, you are also the great one who has disturbed death to death. Thank you that we have received grace in abundance.
thank you that because of your cross and because of your resurrection, we have life. Thank you that you have called us and that you never let us go. Father, please open our hearts and minds and ears. Give me the words to say and speak your truth through my lips, by your spirit. Amen. Uh, Just a reminder from our last series, if at any point during the sermon you feel that God has something that we need to hear, just throw up your hand um, and and let us know. Um, We've already been encouraged and blessed by, by Greg and Linda. And, and hopefully we will be that again as we look at Jesus. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 19, verse 45. Luke chapter 19, verse 45. So Jesus has just come into Jerusalem. We We are just before the start of his last week, of the Passion Week. And what does Jesus do? He goes to the church. He goes to the temple. When Jesus entered the temple, he started chasing out the people who were selling things. He told them, the scriptures say, and this is the verse we heard, he said, the scriptures say, my house should be a place of worship, but you have made it a place of robbers. And where they hide. Each day, Jesus kept on teaching in the temple. And so the chief priests, the teachers of the law of Moses, and some other important people tried to have him killed. But they couldn't find a way to do it because everyone else was eager to listen to him. One day, Jesus was teaching in the temple and telling the good news. And so the chief priests and the teachers and the nation's leaders asked him, What right do you have to do these things? Who gave you this authority? And Jesus replied, I want to ask you a question. Who gave John the right to baptize? Was it God in heaven or merely some human being? And they talked this over and they said to each other, we can't say that. God gave John this right. Uh, Jesus will ask us why we didn't believe John. And we can't say it was merely some human who gave John the right to baptize because the crowd will stone us to death because they think John was a prophet. And so they told Jesus, we don't know who gave John the right to baptize. And Jesus replied, then I won't tell you who gave me the right to do what I do. All through the Gospels, um, what we see is Jesus being full of authority. Right from the start in Luke chapter 5, verse 24, we read, Luke says, Jesus saying, I will prove to you that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And he turns to the paralyzed man who has been paralyzed all his life, I think. And he says to him, get up, pick up your mat, and go home. 
Right from the start, Jesus is proving his authority in the Gospels. Time and again, as he heals, as he teaches, as he preaches, as whatever he does, he is showing his authority as he drives out the demons. Now we know, hopefully as Christians, we know why Jesus has authority. We see it actually in Luke chapter 4 verse 1. That Jesus is filled by the Spirit of God. He has the authority and power of God. But that's us looking back in hindsight. For those in his day, the question that everyone was asking is, who is this man? I'm going to lose everything here, aren't I? Who is this man and what authority does he have? Now we see the the cleaning, the cleansing of the temple. Uh, Luke chapter 19 verse 45, we, we see from Mark Uh, that this, as we said, is just after the triumphal entry, Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem, all the crowds waving him as the, and acclaiming him as the promised one sent by God the Messiah. Hosanna, Hosanna, they cried. Jesus comes to the place where God is to be worshipped. He's been in many synagogues, Uh, in his journeys, but now he comes again to the temple. The place where God's name is to be honored. And what he finds, what he finds, makes him so angry. I'm sure they justified it. There's a, who's got it? Can I steal your bulletin, Graham? There's a cartoon on the back of the bulletin. It's a picture of Jesus in a gift shop in the temple. And it says, oh, it's true that we are selling in the temple, but you should know that 10% of temple monopoly is going to charity. Oh, it's, it's okay for us to, to, you know, do this sort of thing because it's, it's not too bad, is it? We're doing God's stuff. That's the sort of behavior that they were expecting in the temple. The chief priests and the leaders and the teachers of the law of Moses. They would say to Jesus, we are doing God stuff. If you're going to have sacrifices, you need to have someone to sell the sacrificial animals. If you're going to have temple offerings, well, you have to have it in the Tyrian currency because that's the one that we use, the temple shekel. And, and they've got a point. You, you do need this stuff, and it's good. But Jesus comes in, and he is violently angry. Because what they're doing is they are taking a place which is meant to be for the prayer and worship of God, the place where God's kingdom is meant to be honored and glorified, where God's name is supposed to be great, and they're making it into a circus. Apparently, they're trading in the court of the Gentiles. Now, if you know a little bit about the construction of the temple, there's all these different places where 
where people are and aren't allowed to go. Of course, nobody except the high priest once a year allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. And then you've got the most, sorry, the most holy place. And then you've got the holy place around that. And then you've got a court where the Jewish men can go. And you've got a woman's court. And right on the outside, you've got the court of the Gentiles. And so the Jewish leadership think, well, okay, obviously us Jews need to worship God. And so we will... We'll set up business outside where the rubbish Gentiles belong. And Jesus comes in. Do you notice what he's doing here? He's getting angry that the temple is desecrated. But what bit of the temple? The bit of the temple that is for the nations. Jesus gets angry that the Jewish people have denied the Gentiles the right to come and pray and worship God. My house, says he, quoting Isaiah, shall be a a place of prayer. In context, it shall be a place of prayer for all the nations. And you've come in and you've said, no, it's about us. We are the important ones. We are the ones that matter. It's the church that counts. Not the heathens outside. And Jesus throws them out. He drives out those who sells. Matthew and Mark says he drives out the money changers and the buyers as well. And he replaces them with himself. Verse 47. Because the temple is meant to be the place where God's kingdom is announced and pronounced and most visible, where God's name is meant to be great. And Jesus stands there, and what does he do? Verse 47, Jesus stands and he teaches daily in the temple. Of course, This only strengthens the resolve of the leaders and important officials to do away with Jesus because as far as they are concerned, they cannot allow Jesus to dictate how they do religion. And already here they decide to kill him, but for lack of opportunity they would. We're told there that one day Jesus is in the temple doing what he always does, teaching people, speaking with people. My house shall be a place of prayer, which means it's a place to meet with God, to speak with God. That's what Jesus does. He speaks with the people. And they come to him and they say to him, what right do you have to do these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus is questioned by those in power in authority. And, and you could say with some reason, Jesus is an outsider. Jesus has had no formal academic training. He hasn't, he hasn't learned under rabbi so-and-so. You remember Paul, who, who, who was able to say, uh, as far as being a, a Jew is concerned, I am a Jew par excellence. I was a Pharisee. I trained under Gamaliel. I know the law backwards. I have the credentials. Jesus comes without those credentials. 
He's got no degree on the wall that he can point to and say, it's okay, I've learned about this stuff. He's an outsider to the system. And as far as they are concerned, how dare an outsider come in and say, this is how you do it when they've been doing it for hundreds of years. Who gave you this authority? In other words, we know that we didn't say you could do this. So, come on, sunshine. Who said you could do this sort of stuff? Who gave you the right to come in here and turn things over and chase out our revenue stream? Who gave you the right to come and teach? That's our job. Not that they were. But it's our job. What they're saying to Jesus is, why are you acting as if you think you are in charge? Why are you sidestepping the authority structures that God has put in place? I love how Jesus responds to them. Because he says to them, good question. Let me give you a question. Let's talk about John. From God or not? And again, they can't do anything because they're afraid of the people. But why does Jesus answer their question about his authority by bringing up John? Is it just a clever trick to shut them up for a while? I mean, it works. It does that. It it shuts them up. He does tell a parable straight afterwards, which they are pretty clear means that they are the baddies. But they still can't say anything. But I think Jesus brings up John for a couple of reasons. First off, because John, like Jesus, was not a trained rabbi. Not from the tribe of Levi. He was an outsider. But like Jesus, John acted with authority. And like Jesus, John spoke for God. And like Jesus, John had the respect of the people. And if the leaders said, yes, John John's authority came from God, then they would have to say that Jesus' authority came from God. Firstly, because they're pretty much the same uh, in, in terms of, in terms of their author- speaking with authority and speaking for God and being unaccredited, but, but, but also, also because of the type of authority that Jesus is claiming. You know, the problem was that they thought Jesus was stepping in and wiping out their traditions, not only their traditions, but the God-given traditions that the tribe of Levi should rule in the temple, should serve in the temple. Not rule, actually, should serve, but, but here is Jesus breaking through that and serving himself. And he does so because his authority is the authority of the king, and the authority of God. 
And if the leaders had admitted that John spoke for God, then they would have to admit that Jesus was the king and that Jesus was God's son. Because remember what happened when Jesus was baptized with John. There was a voice that came from heaven that said, You are my son. You are my dear son and I am delighted with you. And remember what John said in the Gospel of John as he saw Jesus walking towards him. John, the man whom they refused to admit, spoke for God. But if he did, they would have to listen to what he said. John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If they acknowledged John, how could they not acknowledge Jesus? If John was a true prophet then Jesus is the true Messiah. And if Jesus is the true Messiah, if He is the Savior, if He is the King, if He is the Lord, if He is God come to save His people, then He has every right to do whatever He wants in the temple. In fact, He has the only right to decide what happens in the temple. And so I think what Jesus was doing was giving them a chance to honestly assess the ministry of John who came speaking about the coming kingdom of God. You said, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Oh, Jesus. Of course, John didn't win too many friends with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Um, You tend not to when you call people broods of vipers and things like that. It's... it's, I don't know if you've read that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. There's no mention in there of call people broods of vipers. I don't know why. John called them out and said, you guys are just out for yourself. And it's clear that Jesus is not going to get an honest answer from these teachers and these leaders They think John was a fraud because he said things they didn't like. But but you notice what they do with Jesus' question? They don't sit down and go, well, what do you what do you think? Was John a prophet? Well, he said some good things. Oh, but he called us brutal. They didn't discuss whether John was a prophet. They discussed was how are we gonna say what we want to say without getting killed? We think he was a charlatan. People think he was from God. And the best they can come, the teachers of God, those who speak for God, who have the responsibility of saying, yes, that that is a word from God. The ones who should have, who should have the best ability to determine whether someone is speaking for God or not, because they're the ones who are supposed to be spending time with God all the time. All they can say is, I don't know. We don't know. It's a veiled way of saying, we won't say. See, the fact is that, and they hadn't got this, the fact is that authority is not in the system 
authority is God's. At Youth Group, we are doing Two Ways to Live at the moment, which is a wonderful gospel tract. You can ask, uh, who have we got in the church that comes along to Youth Group? Uh, Ask Isabella. She can tell you the first three phases in it. The first one says that God is the loving ruler of the world. He made the world and he made us to rule the world under him. The verse is, you are worthy, O God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. You created what you pleased. Revelations 4.11. But the point is, even there in the very start, God made us to rule under him. And what the teachers of the law and the leaders of the people had forgotten is that they were leaders. They were supposed to lead under God. Jesus is more than just another manager of God's people. Jesus is God's own son. And if he is the Lord of the whole world, if he is the Messiah, as John said, then, then he is, after all, Lord of the temple. You know what, the high priests and teachers of the law, they made the loudest noise in Jerusalem. I mean, the the chief priest has got his henchmen, he's got his army, he's got got the Roman governor at his call, he's got the prestige of his role. But he is challenged by the one who comes with authority that is royal and messianic. He is challenged when the old regime is torn down for the new. He is challenged when Jesus exercises his authority by bringing the people back to looking to God, preaching to them, teaching to them, encouraging them to pray. And the leaders are challenged even by Jesus with authority going to the cross. With authority going to the cross. We tend to think, uh, and it's often this way, that that the loudest voice is the one with the most authority. N.T. Wright, um, the theologian, has got a wonderful statement here. He says, if you go to the army, the loudest voice is the sergeant. McBain! Go up and give me her! But how often do you hear a general shouting? Just because you're loud doesn't mean you're in charge. It just means you think you are. Jesus didn't shout much. Well, he he probably did shout as he turned over the tables. And he was loud, but... But you wouldn't have looked at him and said, this man is the one who's in charge. He had a ragtag bunch of 12 followers. Not the nicest clothes. 
You stand Jesus next to the high priest in all of his priestly garments and his attendants. I wonder, I wonder whether we wouldn't all pick the chief priest as being in charge. He looks like he's in charge, but he's not. They gave no answer to Jesus, and neither did Jesus give an answer to them. He doesn't say, I don't have authority, because he obviously does. It's clear throughout the Gospels that Jesus knew himself to have the highest authority. But he will not, he will not speak of it to those who have already decided to reject it. Now, if Jesus is the disturber, one of the ways he disturbs is by saying, I have all authority. And that's disturbing because like the chief priest, so often we look at him and go, that's nice, I'll tell you when I decide what you can do. Or, yes, Jesus, you have all authority. Make sure you work your authority in this way because this is how I'm comfortable when you work your authority. Or, yes, Jesus, you have all authority. But I don't feel like doing that at the moment. Yes, Jesus, you have all authority and you have told me to to tell people how much you love them, but that guy's scary. We should acknowledge Jesus as sovereign over our lives, over our thoughts, over our actions. If he is sovereign, we need to live under that sovereignty. He will challenge us. He will disturb us. I think it's part of human nature that we want to be in charge. We want to be in control. And often we can be the loudest voice. We've looked at the spirit over the last few weeks. And one of the things that I think we've seen is that the spirit doesn't force us. He gently speaks to us. Sometimes God will throw over the tables in our lives. And I imagine those who are older have probably experienced this a few times where God turns the tables over but most of the time he will speak quietly most of the time he will ask us a question most of the time he will say whose authority do I come with And Anne-Marie.